Welcome back once again to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the professor for the course. Well, in the past few lectures, we have delved into the arena of environmental chemistry, and in a certain sense, we'll continue that today in a lecture on environmental transport. What we'll try to do is look at some of the physical relationships between environmental chemistry and its potential impact in terms of environmental toxicology. This is a prelude in, uh, to the next four lectures that we have here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology. The next four lectures are actually going to be vignettes of case studies. Uh, each lecture will be uh, anywhere from three to five uh, case studies talking about, again, a situation, a site, uh, where we examine the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls. These case studies that we do will be very similar to the major assignment that you have in this particular course of developing a case study on the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls of a chemical in a particular contaminated environment. So in a certain sense, this should give you an idea of the range and scope of case study topics that are required for completion of this course. Our learning objectives here today, what I'd like to have you do is actually understand the spatial and temporal, temporal diversity of toxicological and contamination events. Uh, when we talk about a contamination, uh, it's a lot different to talk about uh, a spill at the end of the pipe or, for example, something that's going to impact the ozone layer of the planet. And so we want to be able to at least look at the spatial and also temporal diversity. Temporal diversity, for example, uh, they're predicting that it may be uh, oh, well into uh, decades, perhaps a couple hundred years until the ozone hole has the ability to uh, actually cure itself. Uh, when we talk about radionuclide contamination, we can be talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of years of dissipation of that decay. And so it, it does make a difference uh, between those sorts of long-range impacts and shorter-range impacts, for instance, a pesticide that might biodegrade or have a half-life of two or three days. And so it's of interest to us in this course and in terms of our application of what we've learned here into particular sites to understand spatial and temporal diversity. We'd like to have you be able to describe the linkage between the various natural forces uh, that are available in the environment and the chemodynamics of contaminants. Last time we went through an array of what these physical forces are as well as some of the thermodynamic and kinetic drivers in terms of environmental chemical reactions. Okay, We'd like to have you explore those linkages a little bit more in today's lecture. We'd like to have you be able to list the, some of the important zones of impact, uh, for example, estuaries, uh, where there's high biological productivity. Uh, estuaries that become contaminated have the potential to have a larger scale toxicological impact, environmental toxicological impact, than perhaps other sources which are not as biologically productive. We'd like to have you understand the relationships of human activity and the potential for chemical release and contamination. When we have an industrialized zone, we have more potential for release. Uh, the more activity that we have clustered together, we'll take a look at that from the perspective of the United States. Although within the context of this lecture, we'll deal with US problems, obviously transboundary and global problems in terms of contamination. Contamination that's been mobilized, that is in fact able to be delivered from one point 
on the globe to another via Earth's environmental forces, such as wind, rain, and movement of the oceans. Uh, we have that uh, capacity. Uh, I want you to recognize it, but we'll talk at least uh, for the purposes of this lecture just in terms of natural boundaries. We'll try to have you understand the relationship of transport and various specific chemical processes of contaminants in the environment. Things like the sorption process, where soil acts as a sorbent, uh, uh, stickiness of soil and soil uh, media uh, for various types of environmental contaminants, how it actually can retard and perhaps even sequester certain types of uh, synthetic and as well natural contaminants in terms of presenting the potential for toxicosis. We'll try to have you explore as an example some of the fundamental processes of DIRBs. These are dissimilatory iron-reducing bacteria. We're going to do this a little bit as an example of a very, very important uh, uh, soil subsurface pathway and the relationship of these iron-reducing bacteria to contaminant biodegradation. A very important thing. It's a focus area, if you will. Uh, we'll take a look at that uh, for a little bit of in-depth uh, knowledge and exposure to some of the research areas that are occurring in terms of transport of chemicals in the subsurface. We'll try to have you as well develop a little bit of recognition and respect for what happens under your feet. Uh, I will post on the website my demonstration of a groundwater simulator. Uh, we've typically done it in this lecture. Uh, this year, I think I'll just post the tape of last year's lecture of this demonstration. Uh, most of us uh, are very good at understanding the threats and the risks, to things that we can see. Uh, we have a cognitive bias, uh, if you will, to uh, uh, fluorescent green water coming out of a, a pipe. Uh, if we have a subsurface uh, release of a contaminant, we don't see that. We don't necessarily develop the same sort of concern and cognitive bias. Uh, we need to have respect for what goes on beneath our feet. Uh, quite often, uh, the world's water resources, freshwater resources, are significant, and the potential for contamination is significant because of gravitational forces. We'd like to have you then develop this knowledge of groundwater movement and the various processes such as advection and dispersion, how contaminants can move, how a, a contamination site uh, up hydraulic gradient uh, from perhaps a population center or groundwater well or drinking water well can actually uh, uh, mobilize and actually contaminate uh, the water resource for a significant receptor zone. We'd like to also have you understand the interaction of what is perhaps one of the biggest challenges of the future, and this is non-aqueous phase liquids. And these uh, napples, as they are uh, called, uh, can interact as groundwater. Uh, think about this. Groundwater is a reservoir. In a certain sense, the soil and the aquifers beneath our feet are sponges, and uh, there is the potential for gravitational forces to drive down especially dense non-aqueous phase uh, liquids. And some of the dense non-aqueous phase liquids include things like PCBs. And so gravitational forces will allow those to be driven into the deepest reaches of our potential drinking water aquifers. We'd like to have you gain an introductory understanding of atmospheric transport of contaminants. And we will use, uh, in the conclusion of today's lecture, uh, the concept and phenomenon of acid rain as an example. 
We haven't done much uh, in this course in terms of atmospheric pollution and atmospheric transport. Uh, we actually will take up the sword on uh, that subject and subdiscipline uh, during uh, some of our case studies. We'll give you a little bit of environmental history as a context for that as well. Well, in terms of transport of contaminants, uh, as I introduced, we need to be concerned about the spatial and temporal diversity of all of the points of contamination. Uh, the impacts can be local uh, in terms of something that's uh, quite small and has a small impact in terms of a toxic zone, or as we've seen, for instance, in global air pollution, the ozone layer, and in fact, uh, even uh, with the uh, uh, carbon dioxide situation in global climate change, that these impacts can as well be global. The future concerns are, in fact, because of the higher pace of industrialization and the potential for transboundary mo movement, is that, in fact, you have a future where, in fact, your local ecology, your local environment may be unduly impacted by events that are thousands of miles away in foreign lands. The time scale of interest for these contaminants and contamination events uh, can be uh, from seconds in terms of, for example, a very acute toxicosis. Uh, if we have a, a train wreck, there's an acid spill, uh, the toxicosis, uh, the impact to the local uh, flora and fauna is going to be very immediate, perhaps not seconds, uh, but it will disperse uh, relatively rapidly as opposed to, for example, uh, the uh, millennium-type impacts of the decay of radionuclides. Some of the important uh, interactions uh, uh, that we have um, uh, in terms of uh, molecular events and bio biological events uh, will be on the basis of the size of the population impacted. And so we can have local uh, impacts to one, two, three, four, five uh, animals, organisms, people, or we can have overall population effects. When we start changing population, we have the ability to have massive disruptions of an ecosystem, including the human ecosystem. We'll try to identify some of the important interactions uh, between some of the uh, relationships uh, that we have discussed uh, in chemodynamics, things like fugacity and volatilization and dissolution, and how these can interact with the forces of nature to facilitate transport or, in some cases, to mitigate or sequester contaminants uh, and their mobilization. The interaction of Earth's forces include uh, wind, which is thermally generated, uh, water flows, uh, and that can be uh, by thermal forces and deposition of precipitation and uh, snowpacks, as well as gravity, especially in subsurface water. We also have biological movement, remembering that some animals do have fins or wings and in a certain sense can transport via uh, uh, their own energy uh, contamination, especially bioaccumulated or bioconcentrated contaminants uh, from one place to another. This uh, figure here gives you an idea of the scale of environmental toxicology. This is uh, the pyramid, uh, if you will. And going from bottom to top in terms of the smallest uh, molecular level interactions up to uh, the final level of ecosystem impacts, uh, we've been dealing in the past few lectures with the chemical and physiochemical characteristics and how they would have a potential to enhance or deny environmental impact. We have the ability to have this 
initial chemical phase interact with biology and the resulting potential for biotransformation in organisms, uh, the potential for sequestration in organisms. We then have the, uh, the organism having a potential receptor uh, action or some sort of toxicological mode of action. That mode of action may have a biochemical or molecular event that leads to some sort of physiological or behavioral effect. Uh, that can be a toxicosis. Uh, that toxicosis may have an impact uh, as we move up the pyramid to population parameters. Uh, that may actually damage community effects, the interrelationship of various members of the food chain. This whole dynamic can then uh, broadcast in even a larger domain of total ecosystem effects. Have we seen these occurrences? Yes, we have. Uh, currently, there's great concern, for example, on coral reefs where we have had ecosystem effects. The entire coral reef systems have been impacted uh, by the release of pollution, uh, by, by the uh, sustained sedimentation from development activities on coastal zones, uh, the release of uh, raw and treated sewerage, the release of industrial pollution has had an impact on these near coastal zones uh, in many parts of the world. The future uh, is dim in terms of maintaining and retaining these extraordinarily important biospheres. Uh, it's a challenge uh, to your generation and a future generations to preserve and to mitigate the impacts of uh, coral reef destruction. I introduced that spatial and temporal scales are important in a study and an understanding of environmental toxicology on this particular graph. We have the spatial scale, one micron all the way up to uh, 10,000 uh, kilometers. Uh, the idea being that this is a very small spatial zone of impact. This is a very large spatial zone of impact. The temporal scales here um, on the y-axis from one second to up to uh, and exceeding uh, a million years. Uh, down here in terms of the size, the spatial impact, and the uh, amount of time, and this has a lot to do with biological turnover, but we can have these genetic and molecular biology impacts. These are small scale, typically smaller uh, uh, temporal scale uh, impacts. We can impact uh, from in terms of the next uh, sequence, microbial processes, and perhaps uh, have organismal and physiological behavior challenges uh, that might also impact organ tissue and physiology. This is our traditional zone right down here of what we deal with in the majority of environmental toxicology cases, the types of cases that you will be uh, uh, working on, things that have on the order of minutes to hours to decades uh, worth of time impact. On a larger scale impact, we need to be concerned if, in fact, this uh, impact is, is going to cause population or population dynamics impacts and then challenging the survivability of an ecosystem and in fact even having the potential over hundreds if not thousands of years of changing uh, landscape dynamics. Have we witnessed uh, the changes uh, in history uh, from uh, these sorts of domains, time domains, short time domains? Uh, yes, we have. We can look back in the past uh, several decades uh, in terms of modern environmental science and see that we have, in fact, not only had the cap capability to impact our environments uh, for uh, 
uh, hours, minutes, seconds, and even decades, uh, but uh, perhaps even longer. When we go back into ancient history, it was uh, uh, Aristotle who actually uh, first uh, noted in his writings almost 3,000 years ago some observations of landscape changes uh, due in that case to deforestation activities uh, associated with uh, uh, the taking of wood for fires and ships uh, and overuse of uh, some of the fragile landscape of ancient Greece. The scale of contamination uh, can change uh, uh, depending upon uh, the uh, particular chemicals and processes that are involved. All the effects are first at a molecular level, but these small effects can have uh, multiplicative activity and have global implications. If you think about uh, the ozone hole and the release of chlorinated fluorocarbon, CFCs, Remember, it was you and I, your moms and dads, and their grandparents that first started, perhaps, using these chemicals as refrigerants, refrigerants for air conditioning, refrigerants for uh, refrigerators in our homes uh, and uh, in our cars. Uh, these small molecular events, these small point sources actually had a global implication in terms of the destruction of the ozone layer. We need to understand and relate back that chemodynamics and various physical properties of the chemical will have the potential to interact with the forces of nature, and each of these can define the scale potential of the chemical release. So, for example, we have many contained contaminants. If you look at, for instance, uh, our nuclear waste repositories, we have been done a pretty good job considering the risks of trying to contain the waste products associated with nuclear activities. We have not let them actually go into the potential scale potential uh, that might happen if, in terms of uh, release of some of these materials into aquatic ecosystems, into the, the oceans of the world, or into the atmosphere. We should not, in our uh, analysis, uh, ignore natural processes. Uh, various uh, chemical contributions that we have can actually uh, parallel uh, the different challenges that we have with normal oscillations in the Earth's chemodynamics. Uh, there can be evolutionary change. We look back in history and we see the presentation of, for instance, weather patterns such as ice ages, uh, landform changes, atmospheric changes. In fact, the early Earth had an extraordinarily uh, oxidizing uh, atmosphere, uh, and uh, uh, there was a challenge uh, from the earliest times in the planet's evolutionary history to have a a reducing atmosphere, and there was a change with photosynthesis to produce this more oxidizing uh, toxic oxygen atmosphere. In terms of uh, chemical contamination, uh, it's pretty self-evident that uh, we can do things uh, in small amounts and having certain types of uh, time frames in terms of the spatial and temporal scales of what we do or have a hand in. Again, the same sort of uh, temporal scale here, uh, one micron to 10,000 kilometers on a, a, a spatial scale, one second to uh, one million years on a uh, temporal scale. 
And so, for example, some human activities, pesticide application, will have to do with on the order of uh, a kilometer to perhaps if you're just squirting your dandelions in the backyard of your home, uh, this might be something on the order of less than a meter in terms of the uh, spatial uh, array of uh, the contamination. Uh, this might have an impact on the order of seconds to hours to perhaps days. If we have a hazardous material skill, this might spill. This might uh, be something that uh, has the ability to do uh, not only just small zones on the order of meters, but that can actually um, be significant in terms of kilometers. If you look at highly impacted zones, uh, for example, mining zones, and these can last from years to, to potentially uh, tens of years. We can have point discharges. We can have cultural eutrophication, where we release nutrients into aquatic ecosystems. Uh, these aquatic ecosystems will grow at rapid race, rates. Uh, this growth will uh, have the potential uh, to deoxygenate these waters and uh, cause population crashes. These population crashes, these changes uh, from nutrient release can actually, uh, again, last for short amounts of time, but also in some zones, for instance, the coral reefs, it can last for decades, if not longer. Uh, there can obviously be uh, aspects of uh, atmospheric deposition. There's great concern right now on the increased use of coal by developing countries for energy resources and the release of mercury. That mercury uh, released to the atmosphere is transboundary. The deposition of uh, some of that uh, mercury happens in our backyard uh, due to no hand of our own. And then finally, climate change, where we're starting to talk about, in fact, that we may be in a climate change cycle due to release of carbon dioxide and global warming effects uh, that may, in fact, uh, not be reversible about all we could do at this point in time. Say the climate scientist is slow down the process. It may not be reversible. We have to have a respect for the natural forces that impact environmental toxicology. Uh, they can move mobile com components of the ecosphere, remembering that the ecosphere is, includes the atmosphere. We have gaseous and particulate transport, the hydrosphere where we have surface water, groundwater, and atmospheric uh, water, uh, the, the uh, lithosphere, which is the surface soil and minerals, and this is surface and subsurface, uh, uh, as well as the dust uh, on the near surface processes. Uh, as well as the biosphere where we have nutrient and contaminant uh, cycling uh, in organisms. We've tried to define, to simplify, especially when we take modeling approaches, uh, that uh, we can put nature into compartments and we can reduce this down to intracompartment and interfacial chemodynamics to have uh, a way to kind of better understand, to model, and to predict uh, based on what we know has happened, uh, predict what might happen if a certain set of circumstances come about. Uh, this helps us in developing the risk-benefit models for uh, environmental activity, uh, things that we do that impact the environment. We can define this rate of movement and tell if it, in fact, has the Im uh, potential to impact uh, receptors that are exposed and when they are exposed. Uh, for example, air will have relatively fast movement. And so, for example, if you recall in our Bhopal example, uh, over the period of one evening of a release, because it was an atmospheric pollutant, 
thousands of people uh, in that city uh, were contaminated uh, uh, with respiratory toxicosis from this industrial chemical. Uh, in surface water, the release uh, can be moderately fast. There are site-specific considerations. Uh, sometimes spills, uh, especially industrial spills or accidents, uh, tanker trucks, trains that happen near rivers are a great concern because there is a large potential for rapid mobilization of that toxicant from that site to potential receptors. Uh, for example, if a, a, a tanker truck uh, turns over and spills in the middle of the desert, uh, the potential for mobilization is usually a lot less because of the lack of water for, for waterborne transportation. Groundwater is a slow-moving system. When we talk about groundwater, we typically are talking about rates of movement on the order of uh, perhaps inches or feet per year, depending upon the groundwater resource. Uh, this is not a uh, fast resource, and so the problem there is once we contaminate groundwater, uh, there is no flushing or cleansing uh, of the source and a contamination can actually last for decades. Uh, I've seen a calculation where one liter of an industrial solvent uh, can contaminate uh, the groundwater uh, for a small-sized town uh, and have an impact that lasts uh, over decades. Uh, one liter of solvent poured down a well or poured into the ground can have decades worth of impact. Some of the concerns that we have in terms of environmental transport are the zones of impact. Uh, sometimes these zones are interfacial between the various compartments. Uh, we're very concerned about those zones that have high biological uh, uh, populations or pr productivity, or in the case of humans, just a high population level. Um, we are also concerned with highly uh, productive areas that are very diverse, very productive ecosystems. Some of these include coastal zones and waterfronts. Uh, and uh, historically, unfortunately, uh, because these uh, uh, dilution was always considered to be the solution to pollution, that just sticking your discharge pipe, whether it be from your factory, your household sewerage, or your municipal sewerage, uh, out into the ocean, the coastal zone, used to be a easy, cheap, and uh, uh, common solution to getting rid of your messes. Uh, estuaries are other important zones of impact. Uh, various chemical changes at this uh, salt freshwater interface are very important in terms of uh, biological productivity, but they can also impact, uh, because you have freshwater hitting saltwater, uh, the fresh water that might contain the contaminants might, in fact, uh, change the uh, solubility of the contaminants. And, for instance, you can have a deposition in estuarine sediments because of the uh, salination process that happens uh, in these estuarine zones. Most of us know that riparian areas and wetlands are very sensitive uh, areas of impact, highly protected typically, uh, especially in the United States via um, the Clean Water Act. These are of great concern because sometimes these are closed or they represent confined uh, uh, oasis populations. 
water resources and wetlands uh, are disappearing in the United States in terms of, uh, for example, uh, in uh, various areas of agricultural production uh, over the past century, and we'll talk about that here later. Uh, we have some concern as well about uh, urban areas in terms of uh, uh, human populations and also nesting areas in terms of migratory populations, uh, whether that be insect populations or bird populations or herbivore populations that migrate to a particular feeding area. There's an increase in population in that zone if, in fact, that is an impacted zone. There is a potential to have uh, population-level effects within that uh, uh, group of animals. I referred to the fact that uh, the last century or so has been fairly devastating for wetlands, not only in the United States, but uh, globally uh, in terms of wetland loss. This is a graphic uh, over the years of 1780 to 1980 of wetland loss. Uh, the biggest number to be concerned with probably is are the reds and the yellows. Uh, the reds represent 90 to 100 percent loss of wetlands. And what you can see here is that in the Midwest there's been a significant loss of wetlands, but also in California uh, significant loss. And this is uh, an important ecological system. Uh, in fact, California is the nesting zone for the Pacific flyway. All the migratory birds uh, that uh, overwinter down in California are looking for wetlands uh, to, to uh, as uh, f uh, reproductive uh, areas for nesting. Uh, and in fact, over the last century, we've had greater than 90% loss of those wetlands. What's interesting is when you look also at another slide, and this is uh, reversed colors. This is the agricultural chemical use. Uh, this slide was taken from 1987 use, but it's a graphic that's useful in terms of looking at the agriculturally productive areas in the United States. It's reversed color in that the greens here are actually the highest pesticide use. Um, and so you can see again the Midwest, uh, the corn soybean uh, belt of the United States, and as well California here with some green uh, being highly productive relative uh, to the rest of the country in terms of agricultural production. But because of their high productivity, they are also higher in use of agricultural chemicals. And so not only are we impacting the wetlands, as you can see here in California in the Midwest, in terms of uh, 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 potential impacts to migratory populations, but we are also uh, using a higher rate of agricultural chemicals in those. And so that does have the potential to uh, impact uh, migratory populations, especially as well as local populations. This graphic uh, is uh, from a decade ago, um, but still is true in terms of toxic releases to land. Uh, these pink bubbles that you see here have to do with the amount of uh, uh, tonnage of uh, uh, release, toxic releases to land. This is typically through regulatory reporting. Uh, the idea here in terms of this graphic and how to interpret it, uh, the larger circles are the largest uh, releases. But what I want to show you is that, in fact, the toxic releases follow population uh, dynamics. Uh, notice that on the East Coast and the Midwest, where we have higher population density, you see more toxic releases to land uh, than perhaps uh, in the uh, Intermountain West. Uh, you do see a lot more in terms of the releases uh, on the coastal California areas. That same sort of uh, dynamic is shown here. And this is hazardous waste generators. Um, 
this is over a decade old as well, but still in terms of uh, its uh, relevancy today in terms of uh, environmental transport and local site contamination. The density of the black dots, you can see, in fact, the eastern seaboard in the Midwest is quite a bit more dense. Uh, petroleum car uh, hydrocarbon production in terms of refineries down in Texas and Louisiana. Uh, the coastal zones here in terms of uh, chemical and uh, petrochemical production in California and the Northwest. And then a relative uh, lack of population and also hazardous waste generators uh, in the Intermountain West. Uh, Superfund, and we'll talk about what Superfund and CERCLA is in our environmental law uh, segment here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology, but Superfund sites are historically uh, contaminated sites. Uh, Superfund uh, was uh, an ambitious program that allowed for the use of tax dollars, tax dollars that came through taxes of chemical and petrochemical companies currently manufacturing, but it allowed the development of a super fund, uh, typically in the billions of dollars that will it allow uh, communities, states, and the federal government to join in a partnership to clean up these hazardous waste sites, some of them being decades uh, old. Uh, you can see again uh, the idea here in terms of highly contaminated historical sites, 1995, perhaps the peak of the Superfund activities in the United States. You can see that there is a density of sites in the eastern seaboard along the coast, the same sort of pattern that we have seen before. The pattern of human activity because of the pattern of population density uh, in terms of United States uh, uh, ecosystem impact dynamics. Another uh, geographical uh, demonstration of the same concept of uh, release following population density is nuclear regulated sites. Uh, these can be uh, nuclear plants, nuclear waste disposal, uh, or large-scale uh, military or Department of Defense or Department of Energy sites. Uh, not as many of these, fortunately, but you can see that the highest density, again, is on the East Coast with scattered density in the, United, in the western part of the United States. How does this m perhaps have an impact? Uh, I can't, we can't do cause-effect in terms of human health impacts, but what you can do is take a look at an epidemiological perspective at cancer rates in the U.S. population. This is a CDC Centers for Disease Control map of, uh, this is uh, age-adjusted cancer death rates uh, in the uh, period of 1986 to 1992. Uh, this particular uh, demographic was white males. Uh, the highest concentration or the highest rate, and so this is population adjusted, so this is rate within a population, so it doesn't have to do directly with density of population, but the highest rates are in the tan and browns, uh, the lowest rates in the greens, and you can see that we start seeing a pattern when we do a kind of a, a little bit of a global perspective here uh, across the country that the highest rates are in fact somewhat parallel with the density of all of the industrialized and toxic uh, chemical release activity uh, in the United States. Is there a direct relationship between the two? Not necessarily, but obviously there is the potential for that relationship to happen as being one of the causative uh, factors of, uh, of cancer. This one is uh, the same uh, age-adjusted cancer death rates in the United States, 86 to 92, but this is for females. 
Um, and you can see the same general pattern. Uh, it is interesting to see that, in fact, uh, uh, female cancer death rates uh, associated with uh, uh, the Western United States uh, have increased uh, somewhat. Um, remember that, uh, at least for this demographic, uh, there was a tremendous amount of nuclear testing uh, back in the 50s in Nevada. Uh, wind flow, downwinders, potential for impact. Uh, epidemiological studies of uh, downwinders have noted in many cases, so whether it be the Hanford Reservation here in the Northwest or the nuclear testing sites in Nevada, a potential for impact of contamination of the land and the local food system. Well, one of the things that we need to do to understand uh, environmental transport is to identify chemical processes uh, that perhaps can control uh, transport. Uh, that can be by these various complex interactions between physical processes and chemical and biological processes. Again, these are the fodder for the chemical modeling activities uh, that we try to use to better understand these very complex situations. We've identified that one of the ways that we can do this in a modeling activity is to develop a mass balance equation, and this will help us predict this movement. But we must uh, also remember that it has to have terms that uh, account for various chemical and microbiological processes and uh, on a complex uh, uh, environmental real-life dynamic, sometimes these are overly complex and our models actually fail. Some of the chemical reactions uh, that we want to be concerned with when we're looking at environmental transport for inorganic chemicals, uh, we'll want to make sure we understand the solubility of our chemical, the potential for dissolution and precipitation or reactivity with various ligands, complexation reactions, sorption and surface chemistry, sorption being probably the most important dynamic in these chemical reactions, various ion exchange reactions and redox chemistry such as we introduced with the poor bay diagram discussion. For organic chemical reactions, uh, we want to be concerned about uh, sorption, uh, hydrolysis reactions, co-solvation. Co-solvation is very simply defined as what happens in terms of uh, a uh, chemical being co-solvated by a chemical that is either previously released or simultaneously released on that site. Uh, for example, uh, if we have a nonpolar chemical uh, a lip lipophilic chemical that might not be very soluble in water. If it is released at the same time as perhaps methanol, a highly polar chemical that is very soluble in water, it will change the makeup of the receiving water sufficiently to enhance the solvation, the co-solvation of the uh, not very soluble substance. Ionization, volatilization, and dissolution are other organic chemical reactions of interest in environmental transport. Sorption, as I indicated, is the most important process affecting the transport of organic contaminants. Uh, for nonpolar organics, it's considered to be a partitioning uh, process between the aqueous phase and the porous medium. We briefly introduced uh, sorption as being able to be studied with uh, various types of isotherms where we have the solid substrate in a contaminated uh, solution and then we analyze via uh, Freundlich isotherms, uh, Langmuir isotherms or others in terms of the relative uh, concentrations on the solid surface and what is retained in the uh, aqueous phase. 
Um, the mechanism of organic adsorption is a hydrophobic uh, bonding between the uh, typically uh, the compound and various organic matter, and so organic matter does play a role not only in suspensions in aqueous ecosystems in water, lake water, pond water, but also organic matter that's in soil will have a direct uh, impact in terms of sorption of organic chemicals. Hydrolysis is an important uh, reaction, especially for organic uh, chemicals. It's the direct reaction of the contaminant with water molecules, and we talked about this in, in our environmental chemistry series. Uh, often we have a re, uh, the reactants forming a product of an alcohol or an alkene. I introduced co-salvation, co-salvation and ionization are processes that uh, may decrease sorption uh, and therefore increase transport. So if we have something that uh, is not particularly mobile and uh, it is co-salvated with something that is highly mobile, it will enhance the mobility of the less soluble substrate. Co-salvation uh, will increase this interaction. Uh, it's important uh, source only when we consider uh, highly contaminated, high concentration areas. Trace contamination with methanol, for example, uh, would not be a co-salvation environment. We see co-salvation when, for instance, uh, we have uh, uh, hazardous waste repository incidents. Uh, we'll talk about the Chemdyne incident in our uh, uh, case studies uh, here uh, in a few weeks, um, and uh, we typically find that co-salvation uh, happens in industrial releases uh, and accidental releases, not necessarily in intentional releases of chemicals such as pesticide application. Acidic compounds such as phenols and organic acids, uh, they can ionize and lose a proton and then become more water-soluble via the fact that they uh, can act as weak acids and weak bases. We need to be concerned about volatilization and dissolution. Obviously, for volatile compounds, we talked about the impact of the Henry's Law constant in it predicting uh, the partitioning between volatile substrates from the aqueous phase to the atmospheric phase. Volatilization from solid phases uh, and, the, and surfaces have a lot to do with the area, the grain size, uh, the various water content uh, off of a soil uh, particle, and also the vapor pressure of the chemical itself, uh, the nature of the beast. Uh, the rate of diffusion can be solubility driven for many environmental contaminants. For inorganic chemicals, uh, we have introduced that speciation is important, and so not only in terms of site characterization do we want to know the total concentration of an inorganic substrate like lead, we want to know what species are there. And so this is important enough in terms of biological, uh, to determine biological uptake, uh, toxicity. Uh, for example, the risk assessment of arsenite is significantly different from the risk assessment of arsenic-5 or arsenic, uh, arsenate. We need to have a knowledge of this speciation uh, because we would like to be able to then use the chemical properties that we know and understand of that particular species to predict transport. Uh, we'll need to understand the free ions, the insoluble species, the metal ligand uh, complexes that may occur with the particular species. Uh, the dynamics of the adsorbed species, for instance, on soil particles, 
the fact that there may be ion exchange, uh, the fact that we have a potential for change in oxidation state, as well as different ligands that may complex it. In terms of uh, these inorganics uh, and organics, there is an interest in understanding the solubility, the dissolution and precipitation of all of the different mineral uh, organic inorganic complexes and compounds that can happen in uh, a chemical that is released into the environment. Remember that uh, for minerals, uh, for elements, uh, these have a natural source quite often. We can find this via mineral dissolution and natural weathering. Uh, there can be uh, compounds that exist naturally in water that uh, can be toxic. Uh, for example, the background of natural waters has a known quantity of radionuclides. Uh, we have a known quantity of radionuclides in uh, soil processes as well, and this has nothing to do with anything that we have done in terms of nuclear weapons, nuclear power. Various uh, natural processes can modify pH. Uh, for example, uh, mineral dissolution can allow for acid development, such as we talked about in uh, acid rock drainage. Uh, leachate is a, an important part of that dissolution process, uh, and like I said, uh, we can accelerate that when we have activities such as mining or agriculture that effectively take reduced substrates or reduced or lower zones of soil or mineral outcrops and actually expose them to atmospheric oxidation, and we expose them as well to atmospheric precipitation. Uh, that precipitation, uh, in terms of uh, water precipitation, can allow for release and mobilization. We can have a chemical precipitation that happens when the solubility product, the KSP, is exceeded uh, by the uh, uh, reactants allowed in that uh, mineralization reaction, again, focusing back on freshman chemistry. Some of the complexation reactions uh, that uh, occur in, in nature have a lot in terms of mobilizing or sequestering uh, various uh, uh, inorganics that might be released in uh, human activities or in natural processes. Uh, complexation is, happens when a metal ion reacts with an anion, uh, and that anion functions as a ligand. There can be a new species uh, called a complex uh, that is formed. That species can be soluble as well. The various transition metals, the metals that we sometimes refer to as heavy metals, are uh, form strong complexes because of the availability of their f orbitals to form these complexes. Uh, ferric iron uh, forms very strong complexes. Mercury, copper, lead, nickel, zinc, cadmium, uh, ferrous iron. Uh, manganese, uh, and then also calcium and uh, magnesium. The ligands that occur in nature uh, include uh, hydroxyl, uh, hydroxide uh, ions, chloride, uh, sulfate, uh, carbonate, uh, fluoride, uh, uh, ammonium, and uh, phosphate, and as well uh, cyanide and cyanate. Typically, we find in, in natural environments that these ligands are usually in excess uh, in various environments uh, and in industrial releases. We can also have organic ligands. Uh, these various organic ligands uh, can include amines, phenols, or various humic materials from decaying organic matter. 
We also need to be concerned in environmental transport about ion exchange reactions. Again, uh, sorption is the most important of these processes, but sorption to this three-dimensional porous matrix uh, containing fixed charges that is also known as soil uh, is an important process in terms of the sequestration or release, the mobility of various uh, compounds. Ions are held by electrostatic forces, um, not uh, by coordination uh, binding. Uh, we can have uh, demonstrate this with uh, anion binding to clays. This graphic allows you to see um, a metal oxide surface complex of various types. Uh, we can have a metal oxide here, and so we have a metal uh, that's complexed uh, or hydrated with waters. We can have an outer sphere complex. This is an anion uh, uh, surface of a clay material. Uh, we can see some uh, attraction here, an outer sphere complex. We can actually see an inner sphere complex where we have active binding between the metal and the clay surface. And then we can also find a surface precipitation reaction where, in fact, these metal complexes are precipitated via the other uh, materials uh, and anions that are in solution, and they precipitate on the surface of the mineral substrate. Redox chemistry is another uh, consideration in terms of environmental transport, and we talked about uh, via Porvet diagrams that we can change oxidation states depending upon the uh, characteristics of typically the water or the soil uh, in the subsurface. Uh, this is important in determining uh, not only mobility but also toxicity of some contaminants. Uh, for example, chromium-6 uh, is considered to be carcinogenic, highly toxic, and very mobile, whereas chromium-3, uh, which is abundant in the environment naturally, is immobile and insoluble. We talked about uh, selenite uh, as being, um, uh, I'm sorry, selenate, chromium, uh, selenium-6, as being mobile uh, and less toxic relative to selenite, which is less mobile, it can bind with iron hydroxides in the soil, and uh, however, it is more toxic. Uh, the redox state of an aquifer in the subsurface uh, can be driven by microbial interactions, uh, microbial oxidation and reduction processes, microbial respiratory processes as well. Um, these various uh, redox potentials that uh, will actually uh, be demonstrated in a subsurface environment can often be uh, 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 driven by a, uh, a dominant electron potential, even though, for example, we talked about Porvet diagrams and all of the potential geochemical uh, reactions that would drive the electrochemical potential in this environment, quite often we find that there are dominant uh, reactions. Uh, the ferrous iron to ferric iron oxidation and uh, uh, oxidation half-reaction is one of the primary uh, redox uh, active species that we are concerned about. There are, as well, uh, various factors that affect mobility of contaminants in the environment, especially inorganic contaminants. The amount and form of the metal uh, is important. The soil properties, such as bulk density, surface area, things like particle size distribution, soil pH, uh, redox status, the oxidation reduction potential of the soil, uh, the ion exchange capacity, the amount of organic matter, uh, the metal oxides that are presented, perhaps for co-reaction, 
and the type and the amount of clay minerals. Uh, all of these are factors in determining uh, mobility of contaminants in a soil or sediment environment. Soil organic matter uh, is one of the primary mobilizing uh, species for things other, uh, for trace and toxic metals, um, because uh, of the potential for development of polyanionic sites for uh, some of these cationic heavy metals. So after we get out of the uh, highly uh, impacted uh, organic matter layer uh, in surface soils and we get into the subsurface soils where there is generally a decrease of organic matter, uh, there typically uh, is observed a higher mobility uh, for some of these uh, uh, dissolved substrates. There are some as well in terms of additional factors affecting mobility, uh, the properties of the leachate phase. Uh, for example, dissolved uh, carbon dioxide as carbonates uh, can react uh, and produce uh, precipitants such as siderite or lead carbonate. I'm going to take a few minutes here uh, and do a focus area on sedimentary iron. Why are we going to do this? Well, if we talk about soil and sediment environments, you have to respect that there are percent levels of iron and iron oxides in soils and sediments. Uh, it's not, uh, uh, it's typically on the order of something like 5% uh, iron in a soil sample. Uh, this iron uh, is one of the major constituents uh, of soil sediment media, and therefore it can be a controlling factor in various abiotic and as well biotic pathways uh, for the fate and transport of organic and inorganic contaminants. You can see this, this is a soil core, sediment core from an aquatic ecosystem and you can maybe perhaps make it out on your slide that there is a zone uh, in the, as you look at the depth profile of this core. The upper zone, more oxidized, is a little bit more orange. There seems to be a break point about right here a little bit greener below that, green to brown. Uh, this oxidized uh, uh, sediment layer here, it's kind of like the rust orange. Uh, uh, this is ferric iron. As you get into the more anionic, anoxic zone of the sediment, you see more ferrous iron, which is a greener substrate, uh, different color change, and so you can see differences in terms of chemical dynamics because of the high concentration of iron in the sediment in this surface layer versus the reduced uh, subsurface layer in this sediment core. This is going to have a potential to have an impact on um, the mobility of contaminants in this environment. Uh, it's important in terms of, uh, and probably the dominant uh, sort of uh, dynamic in terms of de determining uh, the ability of chemicals to migrate uh, in the subsurface. This uh, picture gives you a, a better kind of look at ferric, uh, the bright red uh, orange. We saw this in the acid rock drainage. Uh, this is highly oxidized, uh, iron three. Uh, and this is reduced ferrous iron. Uh, this is uh, ferric as in uh, iron plus two. Uh, the chemical reactivity of these two species will be different uh, in terms of mobility of some contaminants but there can be uh, biotic interactions in terms of microbes that uh, thrive or not in these two types of oxidized or reduced environments. 
In environmental iron reduction, uh, if we talk about surface species, we're talking about oxidized environments, and so we're talking about ferric iron, uh, the more oxidized of the two, being reduced down to ferrous iron uh, because of the action uh, or the inactivity of uh, uh, inavailability of oxidizing substrates. Um, there can be an abiotic reduction by organics, various reduced uh, chemicals that will actually uh, be, uh, have enough uh, electrochemical power to drive uh, this reduction. Uh, there can be as well some uh, biotic interactions, and this is via direct enzymatic activity of dissimilatory ferric iron reducing bacteria, and these are IRBs or FERBs or DIRBs for dissimilatory uh, iron reducing bacteria. Dissimilatory means that it's not linked uh, to uptake and assimilation. Uh, assimilatory means that the organism actually assimilates and there is an uptake uh, or assimilation of the chemical. And so this is an environmental, a microenvironment uh, uh, condition uh, that these iron reducing bacteria do project. How does this happen in terms of these bacteria? It's, collect it's coupled to their respiratory uh, electron transport cycle. Uh, we see donation of an electron from NADH uh, in their normal respiratory cycle. These electrons actually via terminal metal reductase, uh, which is a cytochrome uh, C, actually provide uh, the electron pump to reduce uh, ferric iron in the local environment. So here's the cytoplasm, uh, here's the cell wall. The environment is out here. This electron pump happens to reduce ferric iron to ferrous iron. This dissimilatory uh, ferric uh, reduction is present uh, in natural, highly soluble uh, oxide minerals uh, at circumneutral pH. Uh, ferric iron is a solid phase electron acceptor, and so where you see iron, you typically will find iron uh, oxide reducing bacteria. Uh, it does require direct contact between the iron-reducing bacteria and the oxide minerals. And so this isn't something where you uh, will, because it's an, a dissimilatory process, uh, the microbes actually have been demonstrated via scientific study, uh, actually by some researchers here at the University of Idaho, uh, as well as University of Massachusetts, that the iron-reducing bacteria are mobile and have the ability to swim uh, to find these iron, solid iron substrates. Now this respiratory process is uh, coupled to organic matter oxidation. In fact, uh, people have estimated that in the subsurface, uh, oxidation of organic chemicals uh, to, the, to the rate of about 80% is dominated by these iron-reducing bacteria species, these uh, reducing type species. Uh, this anaerobic microbial food chain will take complex organic polymers uh, via hydrolysis, which then are uh, taken down uh, to monomers and uh, sugars and amino acids. Those will then ferment into organic acids, such as acetate. And in fact, this is the primary uh, food substrate uh, for uh, these uh, reduced organic acids. Uh, then that will be mineralized to uh, carbon dioxide and water, uh, plus in terms of the electron transport, uh, in terms of balancing electrons, uh, to ferrous iron. 
How that happens in sediments uh, is important. You saw the difference in colors. We go down in these aquatic sediments. On the left uh, graph here, this is the depth profile in centimeters, uh, zero down to five centimeters. Uh, this is an iron concentration in micromoles per cubic centimeter. And you can see that the, as you go deeper here in the uh, sediment profile, you see a decrease in the amount of uh, ferric iron, but you see an increase on this side in the open circles of the ferrous iron, the deeper that we go in the sediment core. Uh, in terms of just looking at oxygen, uh, in micromoles oxygen, again, as we go down in this core, such as you saw in the photograph, you see that there is a higher concentration of oxygen in the sediment profile, uh, but as you go deeper, it decreases uh, down to pretty much nil at uh, uh, about uh, five uh, uh, millimeters in this particular case. In the terrestrial uh, subsurface, uh, similar processes can happen. Uh, previous graphs were for aquatic ecosystems, but here uh, we've got a spill or a leaky storage tank. We've got a surface here. We have what's referred to as the Vados zone. The Vados zone is the zone between groundwater and the surface, and typically this is uh, can be saturated in wet uh, times of the year. Uh, there can be high movement. Uh, there's a stable uh, layer here of groundwater, uh, the sponge zone of the aquifer, so to speak. But because of gravity uh, and uh, potential for dissolution and other sorts of actions uh, uh, being carried down by water and dissolution in water, you see that there is a potential for uh, a plume to form. Uh, that plume uh, will actually be involved with the sand, clay, and soil particles. Uh, you, what we find in terms of uh, typical soils is that the sand or clay particles will have a iron oxide coating. This iron oxide coating can interact on a chemical basis in terms of sorption, or it can react with, uh, provide a uh, respiratory resource for iron-reducing bacteria. The iron-reducing bacteria then can use the organic contaminant substrate uh, as a, uh, an oxidizable food source, and thus uh, iron-reducing bacteria can be important in terms of mitigating the potential contamination of the subsurface. These iron oxides are, are very uh, distinct in their color, as you saw in the sediment profile. This is a soil profile, and you can see the same sorts of activity here. Uh, this is a, a Vetozone uh, soil sample, but you can see that there is a tremendous amount of banding. This banding happens because of the rise and fall of groundwater levels and precipitation events uh, over the course of uh, years. Uh, these are reactive towards contaminants in this zone. These bright red uh, layers will be the ferric iron layers. As you get into the darker greener substrate, these are ferrous uh, iron layers. And so iron geochemistry has the ability to influence uh, uh, in, a, in a positive way uh, the uh, ability of uh, contaminants to impact groundwater. In terms of the significance of these dissimilatory iron oxide reducing bacteria, the overall chemical reaction that we have uh, is that we have a carbohydrate plus a ferric iron, is in this case uh, ferrihydrite or uh, ferric oxyhydroxide, 
Um, and the idea is that we are producing carbon uh, carbonate uh, or carbon dioxide and reducing the iron to ferrous iron. Uh, this process allows for uh, oxidation of natural organic matter, and as I said, this process has uh, been linked to about, uh, uh, to be found to be responsible for about 80% of the uh, uh, oxidation of natural organic matter in sediments and soils. Um, there is a suppression of other anaerobic respiratory processes, uh, sulfate reduction, methanogenesis uh, in this particular environment. These are other competing pathways and microbial systems that those of you that come from a microbiology background uh, might have a better uh, understanding of. Uh, this uh, process can uh, generate high iron groundwater, uh, this reduction process, and there can be an alteration of pH and alkalinity in the uh, subsurface water as well. It can assist in generating uh, carbonates uh, such as uh, siderites, uh, such as and uh, magnetic materials such as magnetite. These are uh, uh, oxides of iron, uh, carbonates of iron. Now, in terms of how this uh, happens, there can be a release or absorbed or and or co-precipitated tracer toxic metals uh, during some of these reductive oxide uh, dissolutions. If we have a uh, ferric uh, substrate, this orange is uh, essentially the mineral or the rock with the uh, surface exposed uh, functionality of ferric iron. These ferric oxides um, and ionic sites can actually bind uh, cationic metals. If we do allow for uh, a reduction, uh, that can allow for a release of that and a replacement uh, of a hydroxyl uh, and a metal on there. And so this uh, process allows for um, these metals to be released in the presence of uh, dissimilatory iron uh, reductive uh, dissolution. We can also have uh, the reverse of that in some cases where we have a mobilization of uh, tracer toxic metals, radionuclides, uh, during carbonate mineral precipitation. Uh, we find in this particular case, and we have this ferric oxyhydroxide uh, binding with uh, carbonate to form uh, siderite. Uh, it will produce uh, available carbonate uh, to precipitate metal carbonates. Uh, in this particular case, this is a complex of the uh, iron and the metal carbonate. Some of the significance is that these uh, surface-bound uh, reduced zones where we have ferrous uh, iron, it can be a reductant for various abiotic processes and contaminant transformations. So we can take uh, NO2s and reduce them down to NH2s. We can take carbon tetrachloride and reduce it to uh, uh, dehalogenated form. Uh, we can take chrome-6, the highly toxic uh, mobile variety, and reduce it down to uh, chrome-3. Um, and, uh, pardon me, um, uh, and take uh, uranium-6 and uh, reduce it down to uh, uranium dioxide, technetium-04 uh, to technetium-02. And so this does modify the potential uh, mobility of the contaminant. In terms of the significance, again, of uh, dissimilatory iron oxide reducing bacteria, 
you can f uh, have the production and maintenance of the various metal-reducing bacteria populations uh, that are capable of uh, reducing mobile toxic metals such as chrome-6, uh, cobalt-3, uh, uranium-6 uh, to less mobile forms. And again, this typically is by the production of uh, the uh, normal respiratory cycle, the production of ferrous iron. That ferrous iron can then uh, be an electron donor, uh, the overall production of these reduced species that will be less mobile. The way this is used uh, uh, or impacts nature uh, is important. Uh, for example, this graphic, if I have a surface zone here, and this is uh, oxidation of aromatic uh, petroleum hydrocarbons in a contaminated aquifer. So here's the Vado zone, here's the uh, aquifer region. We have an organic contaminant source, a plume, gravity-driven, driven also by, by water infiltration. Uh, in the immediate zone, there can be methogenic uh, bacteria, then sulfate-reducing bacteria. Out here, we'll get the iron-reducing bacteria and then the nitrate-reducing bacteria in the furthest zone. And so multiple processes, multiple biotic influences and abiotic influences in terms of the potential progression of this contaminant due to uh, the fact that uh, these uh, uh, petroleum hydrocarbons can be a resource or a substrate uh, as bacterial food for several different varieties. Now concerning uh, groundwater, why is it uh, of great concern to us? Well, because primarily uh, about half of the U.S. population use groundwater for drinking water. And historically, we've not had a great deal of respect for groundwater. Uh, we can't see it, and therefore it doesn't concern us. Uh, for the better part of the last several centuries, uh, digging holes in the ground and burying your waste uh, wasn't accepted and sometimes even governmentally recommended practice. Uh, we now know that carries a high degree of risk, especially in porous soils that have active transport. In many areas of the United States, and even in this part of the, the uh, country in the Northwest, uh, we have sometimes very shallow aquifers, aquifers that are only 15 feet uh, below uh, our feet. This, in many cases, is the drinking water for a community, a drinking water for an isolated uh, ranch well. And in fact, uh, one can argue that what you put on the ground today in those kind of zones, uh, you will, in fact, be drinking tomorrow. Groundwater provides about one-fifth of the freshwater supply in the United States. Uh, it's about 30 trillion gallons or more of groundwater that is, is actually used. Um, the other aspect of concern about groundwater and its influence on surface properties or interaction with surface properties is that groundwater can become surface water. And this has a lot to do with downgradients and changes in landscape dynamics. Uh, for example, in the uh, uh, Snake River uh, Valley Plain in the southern part of Idaho. The uh, aquifer actually uh, pours out of uh, a canyon wall in the Thousand Springs area of the Snake River. Uh, hundred or thousand year old groundwater uh, is pouring out of the side of the canyon, not off the top, uh, from a, a very, very large scale sponge aquifer in that zone. 
We have to be concerned about uh, groundwater because it can be a sink for waste because of gravity. So accidental spills or fertilizer runoff, ag chemical leaching, various uh, sewerage operations, all of our surface activities have the potential to contaminate groundwater. We need to understand transport uh, in the subsurface to do risk assessment when in fact we do have an accidental spill or an impact. Uh, give you an idea of how this can be used uh, in uh, a part of uh, the state of Washington. A farmer uh, found some Dynaseb uh, in his uh, uh, barn. He uh, thought that, uh, heck, this is an old herbicide. Uh, it's a problem to me because I can't use it anymore as a banned herbicide. Uh, and he pretty much dug a hole and poured uh, 50 some odd gallons of concentrated herbicide into this hole. Well, as it turned out, uh, over the next couple of years, his neighbors who were down gradient from him uh, actually started turning on their taps and seeing yellow water, yellow water from high levels of contamination of this particular herbicide. Uh, it's not acutely toxic, but it does have reproductive effects, and there were several women of reproductive age that, uh, in essence, were drinking Dynaseb-contaminated water for a considerable amount of time. Uh, this uh, particular uh, uh, illegal disposal ended up costing this farmer well over a million dollars in terms of cleanup activity. We need to understand transport so we have the ability in our modeling to predict the time and arrival and sometimes the concentration uh, at a receptor monitoring well. Uh, if we do have an accident, if we do have a historical release, uh, sometimes uh, it's deep enough in the groundwater, it's impractical to actually uh, try to uh, actively uh, remediate the source. And so we actually then have to remediate uh, the residual uh, down gradient uh, water. We have to clean it up by pump and treat. And so it helps us uh, be able to predict uh, if we've got uh, uh, mobility in the subsurface in a sense how long we have before that plume uh, and its chemical contamination get the potential receptors. This helps us design and, uh, uh, and cost out uh, the various uh, remediation uh, approaches, the management approaches, the mitigation approaches that we have. Uh, we can use this modeling and these transport phenomena to understand uh, the uh, various uh, processes and therefore have a monitoring program in place. Uh, we can then come up with some sort of long-term strategy that is cost-effective, again, based on transport modeling. One of the things we need to know about transport modeling is that uh, contaminants uh, will move in the direction of groundwater. Uh, it's typically horizontal. It's determined by the hydraulic gradient. Uh, water flows from high elevations in the subsurface, like uh, uh, the foothills of mountains uh, to lower uh, elevations like valleys. That's why we sometimes uh, see rivers, streams, or creeks in the center of valleys. Uh, as a contaminant uh, moves, a point source contaminant, uh, like a barrel of uh, solvent that has been dumped on a site, as it uh, goes into the groundwater, uh, it will actually decrease in concentration It'll decrease because of dispersion events, and these are molecular dispersion in terms of just the mixing, and as well the hydraulic uh, fluid mixing uh, associated with what's going on in the subsurface. There will be filtration, absorption events, chemical processes, and microbial degradation, all of those processes that we listed earlier in today's lecture.
some of these uh, events will treat all contaminants equally. So these physical events, such as dispersion, it doesn't matter if it's organic or inorganic, it's mixing it up uh, in a physical way. There are other processes, the chemical processes, some of the physical processes, such as sorption, will actually uh, be specific for each individual chemical in a potential contaminated site. We find in applying these sorts of basic principles to developing models, these predictive models, that the actual complexity of the subsurface is uh, a particularly challenging uh, model target. Uh, to get an idea of the complexity of the subsurface, next time you're driving, uh, you drive by a road cut uh, in the side of a hill, look up on that road cut and perhaps you will see uh, not only uh, a uh, surface zone with uh, organic uh, matter, uh, you might see various colors, uh, the shapes and sizes of the mineral substrates, the sand, the silt, the clay uh, that might be in that road cut. All of those uh, are complex. Typically, we will drill cores in a contaminated environment to get an idea of what the subsurface looks like, to get a better model uh, of the zones in the subsurface, uh, whether or not there's a clay aquifer, uh, an aquitard for an aquifer that will drive uh, uh, water more horizontal than vertical, and to get an idea of the ability of uh, our approach to accurately model in a predictive fashion subsurface movement. One of the ways we model subsurface uh, movement is by uh, using advection dispersion theory, or AD as we call it. AD is useful for predicting uh, when, for example, an action limit, uh, what's the maximum concentration that will be allowed in a water resource down gradient, down hydraulic gradient from a contaminated site. Advection is a process defined as the transport of a non-reactive tracer, and this is at groundwater velocity. And so this clocks groundwater velocity for us. And so this is the movement uh, without any dispersion. Dispersion is this molecular diffusion, the hydrodynamic mixing that is associated with uh, water as it's moving through this highly porous matrix in the subsurface. Uh, it'll cause a decrease in concentration because of the mixing of the contaminated concentrated plume with all of the other surrounding water. Uh, and uh, that dispersion, the dispersion itself, will increase uh, with the length of the flow. So we need to understand AD and to do a risk assessment and also to design uh, remediation approaches. And so this is a standard engineering practice for contaminated groundwater sites. Contaminated groundwater sites typically are classified uh, by the type of contaminant it, it uh, actually has. The two types of contaminants, uh, organic and inorganic, are the major kinds. The, of or the organic contaminants, these are referred to uh, in one category as non-aqueous phase liquids. These are the, the liquids that uh, do not mix in the same way we have an octanol water partitioning, an oil slick. These are non-mixing liquids. And so the dynamics of non-mixing liquids are going to be significantly different from those that do have the ability to mix. These napples uh, can be non-soluble to slightly soluble. So even though we have small amounts of, uh, we have a large amount of oil in an oil slick, there will be small amounts of petroleum hydrocarbons effectively dissolved in the water. 
The description is based on the density of the bulk contaminant, and these typically are bulk contaminant situations. So this is where large amounts of a product have been uh, released, such as a petroleum hydrocarbon spill, a PCB spill. There are two types of non-aqueous phase liquids, a light non-aqueous phase liquid, an L-napple, and these are uh, floaters, if you will, uh, such as petroleum hydrocarbons that float on the surface of water. Now, if you have a substance that is denser than water, these are dense non-aqueous phase liquids, uh, D-napples. Uh, D-napples are also referred to as sinkers. These are things like chlorinated solvents, like tetrachloroethylene, uh, PCBs, D-napples represent one of the greatest challenges in environmental cleanup, and you'll see why here in a moment, because of their uh, drive by gravity to ever deeper regions in uh, submerged aquifers. Now, in terms of these non-aqueous phase liquids, we need to kind of understand their relationship to uh, the soil substrate. Uh, because they uh, are non-soluble as they move through the soil column, they actually displace air and water. Uh, so it's of interest in terms of the uh, physical dynamics and the biodynamics of what is occurring in the particular contaminated environment. Uh, now, water is a wetting agent, and so it tends to cover sand grains and line the pores, the microscopic pores that might be in the, in the middle of a soil and sand grain. And so what happens is uh, there is this uh, surface layer of water, um, but uh, the napple actually goes around that. Uh, uh, both phases are active, and so we actually do then have a uh, interface of a non-aqueous phase liquid. We have an oil slick, in this case, uh, of a, uh, uh, an L-napple uh, that is, in essence, uh, floating, if you will, on the water uh, lining these uh, uh, minerals. Uh, we have um, the uh, permeability uh, of this phase uh, actually changes. It changes in terms of water permeability and also permeability of the substrate. Uh, it depends upon the particular medium, uh, and you can kind of demonstrate this in soil and sand columns uh, on a laboratory bench. You can actually use this relative permeability uh, in an example to calculate that, in fact, uh, because of this uh, interaction of the uh, soil pores and uh, the substrates that uh, uh, in the very slow movement typical of groundwater that in fact small amounts of napples can actually represent uh, very long time spans of potential contamination. Uh, in this particular example, I won't do all the calculations for you, but if we have a cubic meter of soil with 35% porosity and it contains tetrachloroethylene at 20% residual saturation, so the porosity is the empty space between the soil particles. It's at 35%. 20% of that is uh, the residual saturation that remains. That residual saturation um, represents 20% uh, of 35% is 7%. And so for a cubic meter of soil, that's 0.07 cubic meters of pure product TCE in this one cubic meter. But if we take a look at the solubility of TCE as uh, uh, 1,100 milligrams per liter, and then we take a look at groundwater flows uh, at 1.7 centimeters per day, we can then calculate that 
dissolution, uh, removal by dissolution in this particular cubic meter of soil from the clean water that is passing through it, the rinsing, if you will, will take 15.4 years. This is a significant number. This suggests that when we uh, contaminate the subsurface with these NAPLs, these non-aqueous phase liquids, we have the potential to have a very long time span of contamination. L-NAPLs are these light aqueous phase, uh, non-aqueous phase uh, um, liquids. When they do enter the unsaturated zone, this Vado zone, uh, the drier soil on top of the aquifer, uh, it will flow through the central portion of the unsaturated pores because this is not saturated with water. Uh, there'll be some gravity flow there that hasn't really hit water yet, and so it's just uh, gravity uh, driving it down. Um, if it's small, there'll be a residual saturation point. Uh, it's the same way that uh, perhaps if you've ever had an oil spill in your garage and you throw uh, sand or dirt on it uh, to absorb it, uh, that's a residual saturation. You essentially have used it like a sponge. Uh, but until that residual saturation is reached, uh, the oil will actually be a gravity, still go down until it hits water. Uh, you will develop, because there will be residual water and, and air there, uh, a three-phase system will actually uh, happen. There will be some partitioning uh, with the air and the infiltrating water as well. When we have large volumes, a uh, different situation happens, and you can see that down in this graphic. So if we have uh, a large oil spill, this Vado zone, uh, this, the dry subsurface, the relatively dry, uh, shallow subsurface, you'll get gravity that drives it down until it actually reaches uh, the aquifer. There's always something on top of an aquifer called the capillary fringe in the same way if you put a piece of uh, uh, paper uh, next to water, you'll see the uh, capillary action drive the water a little bit up that. It's not as wet as the water itself, but it's an interface phenomenon. But as it hits the interface, because this is a light non-aqueous phase water, it starts uh, spreading out. Uh, the pluming, it'll float on water. Uh, the changes in the water table will uh, affect the depth of the plume. So during a seasonal cycling of water up and down, this uh, plume uh, that's floating on it, this petroleum hydrocarbon in an L-NAPL example here, will actually uh, uh, change in terms of its overall depth. Um, it sometimes uh, can be uh, somewhat immobile because you can develop a residual saturation uh, so the pure product is, is saturated in the soil pores. This is in opposition to DNAPLs. In the case of L-NAPLs, uh, you can actually stick a pipe down there for a large-scale oil contamination and actually pump up pure product. One of our case studies, we'll talk about Midway Island and some contamination from World War II. Uh, the contamination was by jet fuel and bunker fuel oil that was actually floating on the groundwater in the island. You can actually stick a pipe down there and pump up near pure product because, again, it's floating in the subsurface on the aquifer, uh, and you can pump out pure product. It's different for DNAPLs. Remember, these have denser, uh, they're denser than water and therefore will sink through the water phase. So instead of like a petroleum hydrocarbon product that's going to float on the top of water, a DNAPL will actually go to the bottom of the water column. 
This is why we talked about PCBs, uh, and there have been observations of pools of PCBs in uh, the Great Lakes, and we'll talk about the Hudson River PCB incident in our case study, where we talk about pools of PCBs that uh, occur behind dams in the Hudson River. But in a spill, these dense non-aqueous phase liquid flow through this unsaturated zone, driven by gravity. Remember, they're pretty dense materials, and they go towards the water table. If we only have a small amount, uh, it will flow until it reaches some sort of residual saturation uh, in the Vedas zone. There'll be some interaction, perhaps, with the capillary fringe, um, and uh, it'll exhibit what's referred to as viscous fingering, which is a physical phenomenon I'll show you here in a picture in a second. Without water, the denapple uh, and its vapors can actually sink uh, because they are dense and they are driven by gravity, and they can sink down uh, in extraordinarily deep depths, again, driven by gravity, and finally uh, potentially get even to deep aquifer groundwater. Now, in terms of large volumes of uh, denapple spills, it'll flow until it reaches this capillary fringe and it'll begin to penetrate the aquifer. It overcomes the capillary forces uh, at this interface zone, and then it uh, actually uh, will develop, because of its gravitational weight, its pressure, uh, develop uh, a plume uh, vertically down uh, to the deeper parts of the aquifer. Uh, the critical heights in terms of uh, some of the forces to overcome uh, the uh, capillary action at the water surface uh, can be calculated from basic principles. Those critical heights can be from a few centimeters uh, in coarse grains to tens of meters for clays. And so uh, the type of substrate in the subsurface will be a discriminating uh, factor in denapple progression. Uh, the idea is, is that these unfractured clay aquitards can be effective denapple barriers. So what you have here with this dense non-aqueous phase, you have a vertical progression downwards, you reach the capillary fringe, you start demonstrating a little bit of pluming because of the, um, it has to overcome this critical height, this uh, uh, capillary action which is driving fluid up. And so there's a physical force interaction here. Uh, this viscous fingering uh, uh, develops at this uh, fringe boundary. Once it reaches uh, the aquifer itself, it just pretty much spills through. Uh, if you have a clay aquitard, um, that will uh, be an effective barrier. The problem associated with denapples is they will migrate downward until they are effectively stopped by some physical barrier, such as an aquitard. For atmospheric transport, uh, this is going to be our final uh, sort of focus area for today's lecture. And again, this is not uh, uh, an in-depth uh, analysis where what we'll do is uh, just use it in the context of environmental transport and then do a focus on acid rain generation. But for atmospheric transport, uh, we've identified that this is uh, uh, can be a relatively fast process for an acute toxicant dispersion. Uh, there can be local and distant impacts because of the, the potential of uh, the atmosphere and winds to move things uh, rapidly uh, in terms of potential distribution. Uh, there are some natural processes that can contribute to transport. To have an atmospheric uh, concern, we have to have a volatile chemical. Uh, we have to have a chemical that can dissolve in water vapor. Uh, in the California Central Valley, there's an action called toxic fog. 
that the uh, overnight fogs in the wintertime can actually dissolve some pesticides that have been uh, applied to overwinter uh, orchards, for example, in uh, the California Central Valley. Uh, those chemicals can then uh, be carried by this fog uh, fairly significant distances, taking the agricultural chemicals uh, with them. We can also have air buoyancy. Air buoyancy of particulates typically is particulates that have uh, a size of uh, less than 10 microns, less than 5 microns. These particle sizes will be air buoyant. There can be uh, atmospheric transport of particulate toxicants. As a focus example, let's talk about acid rain to finish up today. Uh, this is uh, a situation where precipitation is more acidic than normal natural background precipitation. Uh, we've observed acid rain uh, for almost a century uh, in Scandinavia, uh, in Canada, and in the United States. Uh, this has been associated with air pollution problems and typically industrialized release of things like sulfur dioxide. The problem is, is that uh, we can have these uh, acidic uh, precipitation depositions uh, as rain or snow, uh, but there can also be a dry deposition of various types of uh, acidic uh, process uh, residuals. Uh, dry deposition is usually occurs near these uh, point emission sources and partic particulates that are uh, made airborne by physical processes on the surface. This wet deposition process, uh, encouraged by rain, for example, is uh, far more distributed. Uh, and it can be hundreds of kilometers away from a point source. And typically, we find this being caused by sulfur or nitrogen oxides uh, from industrial processes, from emissions from automobiles. The pH of rain, uh, typically in, in background, naturally, is about pH uh, 5.6. Uh, typically considered to be in the range of pH 5 to pH 7. Uh, ocean bacteria can produce sulfur dioxide, and so in marine environments, uh, precipitation of a pH of 4.5 uh, is not unusual. Now what we find is that release, atmospheric release of uh, sulfur and nitrogen oxides uh, can be converted into sulfuric acid and nitric acid. In industrialized urban areas, this has sometimes had dramatic impacts on building facades uh, in terms of being able to dissolve the rocks that make up uh, buildings, or in some places like Italy, uh, where uh, automobile pollution and industrial pollution has been linked to uh, the dissolving of ancient statuary. Uh, there are more complex uh, chemical reactions can occur, uh, the generation of ozone, the generation of hydroxyl radicals via uh, photochemical reactions that we discussed earlier. Now the problem with acid rain is that uh, the acidity of the precipitation uh, can impact uh, the soil system and in aquatic systems as well. In aquatic systems, you can find, for example, in eastern Canada, uh, acidified lakes, uh, some fish loss due to uh, low pH uh, and high aluminum ions concentrations and low calcium. Aluminum uh, dissolution into natural waters. Uh, aluminum forms polymers. These polymers actually collect on fish gills, make it hard for them uh, to breathe, uh, to transfer oxygen from the water, uh, and can have lethal effects. 
uh, enforced uh, acidic uh, cloud water is responsible for uh, denudation of uh, high altitude forests. Uh, you can see this on hilltops associated with uh, uh, forest zones uh, that are uh, in the direct uh, pathway of industrial uh, discharges of sulfur dioxide and acid rain. Uh, the acidity of the precipitation itself can change the soil dynamic. The impacts uh, to agriculture can be uh, significant, but we don't have uh, a sense that we've had large-scale agricultural impacts uh, in the United States from acid rain. Uh, there have been impacts uh, noted in some parts of the California Central Valley and in parts of Europe near highly industrialized zones in terms of plant damage and plant productivity damage due to atmospheric pollution, some of which is acid rain. Um, obviously, a higher level of acidity uh, in uh, the atmosphere and in the precipitation can enhance rates of corrosion of metals. Uh, it can also, as we've said, uh, speed up the dissolution of carbonate stones like limestone. Uh, there is reduced uh, visibility in the eastern U.S. due to sulfate aerosols. Uh, so this is not only uh, a chemical effect, but also a visual effect. And then there is a question of whether or not we've got direct human health impacts from these particular uh, atmospheric pollutants. Well, that gives us uh, the uh, introduction of uh, environmental transport uh, to and its potential interface with environmental chemistry and environmental toxicology. Uh, next time, what we'll do is start a series of four lectures. These four lectures, what we'll try to do is focus in on specific cases, uh, typically three, four, five, six cases per lecture. We'll go through each case, try to identify the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls. What we've tried to do actually is uh, take a broad diversity of cases that uh, are not only uh, U.S. cases but international cases, and especially cases that have been highly studied.